Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding. Sit next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. Hope it's going great for everybody else. Hope everyone is having a great day. If you look at the podcast app or you look at iTunes, Spotify, there's only mm-hmm. 20 of the most recent episodes on there. Okay. It's a sad day in Focus Compounding history, which is about a month worth of podcasts. Okay. But if you want to get access to the total backlog, 50% of podcasts uh, listenership or, or audience is in, in the form of the backlog. Pretty crazy, right? Yeah, and we have over 200 episodes. That's backlog, right. right. So if you want to get access to that, go to focuscompound.com slash app and be sure to sign up there. Um, you also get access to what we're going to go over today. This is just an example of it and um, some videos as well. So let's talk about this. You wrote up a wrote, uh, write-up for the app called Surviving Once a Decade Disasters, right. the cost of companies not keeping enough cash on hand. And this was inspired by a recent book that you read and a book that you recommended me to read yes. um, by Tillman Fertitta okay. called Shut Up and Listen. I yes. love that. You just got to say it. I thought like Be a, the Bull would be a better title for it, but he didn't I, go with that one. Yeah, that would be because he kind of is the bull, but I love it. Shut Up and Listen. Yeah. You got to say it with authority. So everybody, shut up and listen. It was a short book which you uh, said in this post, but it was actually one of my favorite books. It was so I recommend one it. of my favorite books of 2020. Yeah, you know what books would catch my attention or yeah. keep my attention, I should say. <laughs> uh, I did read it in one sitting, but it was a great book. Tillman um, is in the restaurant business. Mm-hmm. What I thought was interesting, we talked about that in a recent podcast about him, was he went public when restaurant stocks were going public, right. built up the business, and then yes. in the financial crisis, he <laughs> bought the stock back Yeah, when multiples uh, contracted. Yeah, you were like, how do you get this rich and stuff? Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, well, going public at the right time, taking it private at the right time, doing uh, you know uh, secondary offerings and all that, yeah, and mm-hmm. some use of debt. Yeah. This book was incredible, and not even just when it came to like how he built his business and stuff. Like A lot of people reading it i was looking at some of the amazon reviews people yeah, were saying good best in the reviews but then i read yeah, it. yeah yeah people were like oh this is common sense blah blah, blah. i is, mean okay yeah. maybe so but anyone that's running and you and i talk about this, a lot of people yeah. look for like how to advance in your career it, type not, of books no book for that if no. you want a book for about like being an employee at a big company or something not going to help you how to be productive not going to help you any of that if you want like how to be an owner operator in an industry how to roll up an industry how yeah. to be, you know be a capital allocator yeah it's it's a lot like some great advice that i i mean the stuff that he says about working capital for instance mm-hmm. yeah. for like new entrepreneurs that is like the biggest issue that actual entrepreneurs will face when i talk to people who are like oh i'm gonna go in this business or whatever it's not that they like won't earn any money or they won't grow it's that they'll actually run out of working capital like they'll have a liquidity crunch mm-hmm. yeah so he you know talked about that um you know and just the right mindsets you have how to get it done i mean when he purchased the houston rockets for mm-hmm. two point something billion he was saying that and this reminded me of buffett he was saying that all the other parties that were going to make a bid for the company they had like ndas yeah. they had like opt-out mm-hmm. clauses and everything and he pretty much was like here's a hundred million dollars non-refundable i will go find the financing to get this deal done yeah i wish it would yeah yeah you know so that reminded me and and he always talks about in that um, you know, the book, why people like to sell to them is because they yeah. know the financing is good and they'll make a deal yeah. like the next day. We, we've talked about it sometimes, but I'm like, um, it's very, very important to be ready. To, if you have the possibility to make a deal, to be ready to make the deal up immediately and stuff. People focus on due diligence and all that stuff. But a big reason why people miss out on opportunities and business things to acquire a whole business or something is just not closing the deal fast enough, mm-hmm. which is a very Buffett thing to mm-hmm. do. And uh, yeah, moving on the deal really fast with cash is a good way of getting deals done. Mm -hmm. And so he owns restaurants, he owns aquariums, he owns amusement parks, he owns casinos. Yep, and they made an offer years ago for a stock we've mentioned before, Arc Restaurants. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so let's talk about this post. So take me to this write up, and then we could kind of go from there. You're yeah. talking about debt to EBITDA, certain things, how you know right. much leverage a company can handle. So I was trying to just talk about. Um, so this went out to you know the Focus Company Daily thing, and um, it's one of the ones that goes out every day, and this is what they look like. And um, I just talked about a thing that I see a lot. And maybe it's because of people reading things on like Value Investors Club or whatever, is everyone talks about the debt to EBITDA of a stock, and that's about it. So they all do it, all calculate it the same way and everything. And if I ask, like, what's the situation with their, you know, liquidity situation? Or do they use a lot of debt or whatever? What's their leverage like? All I get back is here's their debt to EBITDA. Mm-hmm. Like, that's it. And that's all you need to know. Um, you could have a very high debt to EBITDA on a certain business. Uh, we saw like six times or something like that on um, uh, Sydney Airport when we talked about that stock. If you space out the maturities to a significant extent, if your cash flow is very stable, and if you keep some cash on hand. But what I'll be surprised by sometimes is someone will be unconcerned that a company has three times debt to EBITDA or three and a half or something. They're like, well, three and a half, it's not a big deal. Three is like, people are very relaxed about three, especially in you know recent years. Um, you know, private equity thing could put it to six to one. Uh, so why should we worry about this? But if it's all, um, if all the borrowing that you're doing is due in the next year or two, um, if it isn't a term loan over a very long period of time or bonds or something like that, and if they're, which some companies do, have barely any cash on hand or even need to tap regularly credit lines or commercial paper or something, mm-hmm. that's just very different and very worrying because it means that you'll be in a bad liquidity position uh, when you get hit by these things and unable to take advantage of it. I mean, I've talked a little bit about this before, but I can't overstate enough. A big reason why I chose Virtu Motors over some other car dealers is their balance sheet, um, which is worse now (laughs) because of COVID. But (laughs) to be fair, so I thought it was an advantage that they could be overcapitalized. Well, Mm -hmm. it turns out they're not overcapitalized. Everyone else in the industry was undercapitalized and they're correctly capitalized or however you want to put it after COVID. But, But, you know, they were capitalized in a way that they could survive a shutdown of the industry for a period of months and things, whereas no one else was capitalized that way. So they have to start thinking, well, what do I have to borrow? What do I have to draw on these lines? Do I need help from my manufacturer partners? Should I do a rights offering? Do we need to merge people together? What are we going to do? You know, and you get pushed into a situation where you're um, might be forced to act or something, right? And then the companies that have the balance sheet and everything are in a position where they can act and do that. So I just when I talk to people, the one big difference in how I saw Virtu versus how they saw it versus other dealers is I was seeing more of a significant difference in Virtu in terms of having not drawn on all sorts of inventory financing and stuff, having owned more of their dealerships, just stuff that could turn into cash or get them cash in an emergency or if they ever wanted to do a big deal using uh, cash or debt or something. Mm-hmm. Um and to other people, it was like, well, it's no big deal. These other companies don't have that much debt to EBITDA. Mm-hmm. And it's true. They're not like, it wasn't like the others were over leveraged. But I think there's an advantage in in having one of the strongest balance sheet positions in the industry or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And you, he actually talks about this. And this is a lot of what Buffett says. He was talking money, uh, borrow when money is available, not mm-hmm. when you need it. Because when you do need it, either A, they're not going to give it to you or B, they're going to charge you way more because you do need it you know right. so like the the process of like liquidity and getting credit and establishing all that what i like so much about tillman is he says you build your balance sheet in good times and that's sort of the opposite yeah. of what everybody thinks everyone thinks when times are good let's expand that balance sheet let's continue to grow grow mm-hmm. and grow and he said he built his career doing the exact opposite of that because right. when everybody else gets overextended and then you have some sort sure. of recession or pullback he's really the one that's you know swallowing those companies yeah. um because he built his company's balance 
balance sheet in good times. Now, I hope, um, uh, yes, I know he's okay. probably under a lot of stress, I'm assuming, because okay. his whole industry, this is definitely a, a, a stress test, test like yeah, he's yeah. ever had. Absolutely. Not good after, gosh, I just, I hate to see it. A, because I love this guy. I okay. really do. Okay. Um, I've listened to him on the podcast, other people's podcasts. Yeah. I've listened. I like his mentality. I like the way he thinks about life. I like the way he gets after it. He's okay. the bull, right? Yeah. And then he buys the Houston Rockets. Yes. And then a couple years go by and then this happens. I'm like, right. oh my gosh, please don't be the, don't, don't make this a bad story. Right. You know, that ends badly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I mean, he has 70,000 employees, you know, obviously right. they're in restaurants and the types of businesses that they're in have been that affected. Some very expensive capital. Yeah. yeah. And when he did purchase the Rockets, I have no idea. I mean, like who would have thought that, oh, now people aren't going to be able to go to basketball games Correct. as of right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, who would have thought all this? But right. anyways, um, you know, but he was also he was talking about just this this uh, way of having access to liquidity, which is very much Buffett, and uh, you know, building your company and you know, not getting overextended and having a good balance sheet in good times, and then when things get rough, being able to acquire other companies. That's how you use it. Yeah, exactly. And he talked about the period in Texas because the company started out in the Houston area, um, where nine out of the top ten banks in Texas failed and stuff. And yeah. it actually turned out to his advantage, but it became very difficult to get credit and stuff in Texas. But the good news for him in that case was a great story. it became very easy not to have your bank loans collected on for a while because you know the F- FDIC and all that stuff was like close. Um, taking over these banks and everything and they are having to be put together into new banks and uh so it meant that some people who were smaller borrowers fell through the cracks for a while and gave you kind of that float now they paid it back all eventually he had five years of float yeah basically it was like forbearance yeah and he said that they came to him and he's like we settled no interest he wrote him a check for two million bucks he was able to grow his business from that two million within those five years Mm -hmm. and then when eventually they came for him he just wrote him a check no interest and they went out about their business yeah like but this happens all the time this kind i mean not that exact thing but this kind of thing you'd be surprised because um there's another situation i won't say the name of it and stuff but a big reason why it happened is because there's a loan that I think could have been in trouble and stuff. It could have been impaired. Um, if you look at it, it, because someone got in over their heads on doing something and to add, was overextended and stuff. And so someone else in the industry was like, well, we can take that on. Mm-hmm. And a bank is very interested in that because they're interested in, let's just extend it and and like, let's do a lower interest rate for longer and whatever and get a better borrower on. Let's so roll the paper over. This quarter, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, you can get a lower cost of capital and stuff by doing that. Um, the entire history of Carnival Cruise Lines, what made Mickey Harrison and stuff so rich, is in large part that. They bought a lot of cruise lines that were actually operationally pretty good cruise lines, but they got overextended. They had borrowed too much. They weren't in a position to be able to keep their ships up to date the way that they need to and stuff. And all it took is someone with a good credit rating and stuff taking them over and plugging that into their system. And you could really get value out of it. So in cyclical type industries like that and stuff, restaurant industry and in cruise lines and things like that, there will be some opportunities to get really great assets um, at prices that may be attractive because of the financing stuff behind them what you can do and what the old owner couldn't do um so the financing of it is an important part of it Mm -hmm. so restaurants are interesting so he Mm -hmm. built his whole career for the most part in restaurants um the whole industry is fascinating because you don't meet a lot of people that make a lot of money in restaurants no a lot of people make a small amount of money in restaurants Uh so what do you think are the economics of a restaurant business or like um, that would make it a good investment or like a good company. Like when you analyze restaurants, because we've written up uh, Cheesecake right. Factory before, we've looked yes. at, you reference ARC restaurants. Yeah. I mean, what are you typically looking for? So there's two completely different ones. He went the opposite way. He went the ARC restaurants way, which is you have successful 
restaurants that don't like each concept doesn't have a lot of locations so that's one way of doing it and then you just have to be a really good capital allocator so that's like the berkshire hathaway of restaurants is like landry's basically so that's one way of doing it the other way of doing it is you have a concept that's successful in a way that it can be in like every town in america mm-hmm. so ihop applebee's uh chilies those sorts of things can be like cracker barrel Cracker Barrel. Uh, <laughs> some places where I'm from and stuff, Cracker Barrel hasn't expanded as much. In. It can be through a lot of the country, though. Yeah. Um, but Cheesecake Factory can't, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and they usually get themselves in trouble that way. Like uh, I was saying um, to you that, that you know Landry owns um, Del Frisco's and Del Frisco's Double Eagle uh, Grill and Del Frisco's Double Eagle Steakhouse. Um, and it was funny to me because I had read their filings and they have locations right by me in my neighborhood. And what was so funny about it is like they made a big point about how Del Frisco's Grill is to be filled in only in those locations, you know, filled in those locations which can't support a Double Eagle Steakhouse because otherwise the um, the steakhouse you know is too high priced and it's only for I think they said places with like. 125,000 and up income levels or something. We want to do one that can be higher income, but not ultra high income or whatever neighborhood zip codes, you know? And so they could do this grill, right? Mm -hmm. And so that sounds good. But of course, over time, you're a public company, you got to expand, you do all that. They put these two things like right next to each other. Not even a couple, not even a mile away. No, I can walk between them. And a bunch of companies have done that. Like, you know, um, they filled it into the point that there's several Starbucks around me. This is Starbucks Reserve. This is a Starbucks. This is another Starbucks. It's slightly different. How many Starbucks are in this area? Uh, So I looked and there are, uh, there are, let's see, there are um, five Starbucks within half a mile of me. There are over 10 Starbucks within like 1.5 yeah. miles, something like that. We like to meet at a Starbucks in a hotel oh, because because nobody goes there no, other than amazing. people from the hotel. It's the laid back hotel, yeah. uh, Starbucks and it not goes busy. right into a lobby of a big hotel and everything. Yeah. It's amazing. There's no, it's not it busy. It hasn't been open since COVID. Yeah, that's where, yeah. that was our Whereas normal the meeting Starbucks, spot. Starbucks is so busy that it, we're like, no, we don't want to meet here anymore. Yeah, it's, it's too, too busy. Too, busy. Yeah. Too, much, too many people come through. Um, okay, so let's look at some uh, restaurant stocks. So obviously this has been the biggest stress test ever for restaurants. Sure um uh, the cheesecake factory yeah they were one of the first companies to come out and, and tell their yeah tell their yeah. landlords that um we're not going to pay you oh yeah i was going to say that cheesecake Factory is one of the first stories of a yeah, big public, public yeah. that had such a good offering yeah yeah he, yeah i mean that's what he said how, why he took landry's public yes and he was talking about it too he somebody asked him in an interview i gave about like the top you know three uh-huh. you know best days of his life and he's like well other than like family stuff when your kids are born uh etc he said taking landry's public was great because mm-hmm. he's like you know here you are making maybe a couple million bucks a year and then you go public and now all of a sudden on paper you're worth 100 million dollars yeah. he's like that was a pretty cool day mm-hmm. um and then i guess lastly i want to say this too when he did take the company private yeah we looked um they were doing about a billion dollars in sales okay landry's now does seven billion dollars in sales okay in, in what's that 12 years that's pretty crazy. Yeah, and I think, I mean pre-COVID, I don't know what's going to be right, going forward, I, but I I'm think there's that. a significant amount of uh, debt stuff used in there too. Mm-hmm. But that included what aquariums, casinos. They did like they amusement parks thing a lot. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyways, um, so Cheesecake Factory is currently trading at eleven times earnings, okay. um, but we could use like EV to sales or price to sales sure. of point four. Ten-year uh, median margins seven point seven percent. We're familiar with this company. You've written about this company. Do you yeah, think of so, restaurant stocks like what would you would you ever go into restaurant stocks right now? Yeah, so this looks pretty interesting, right? So pre-tax income is seven point two percent. You're going to be taxed a little bit higher sometimes at restaurants on um, particular states and stuff. But let's assume that on average you're going to only have to pay about a twenty percent um, tax rate there. 
um, you know, just for the purposes of rounding this off and stuff. So on that basis, we're looking at um, you're going to be at well over 5% on your free cash flow um, for each dollar of sales. So historically, they did 6.2. That's probably pretty accurate. In fact, we can use that. It should be even higher because um, taxes are lower, though they have this weird thing where they had a significant amount of float over the years. And that's obviously reversed for COVID. But after COVID and everything, yeah, you could have like a 6% free cash flow yield uh, on your sales. And then your EV to sales right now is 0.4. Uh, of course, it does not include the leases. Um, so EV to sales is 0.4. You divide 6% divided by 0.4, you're going to get a big double digit number. I mean, a low double digit number, but it's big. So, I mean, you can use the calculator if we want to do these things. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, uh, sure. Why not? Yeah. So let's use 6.2%, even though in the future, their free cash flow yield could be higher. The free cash flow margin could be higher than that. Divided by 0.4. There you go, 15.5%. So 15% free cash flow yield. That sounds pretty great uh, in a restaurant business. So um, that's amazing. And the stock is very cheap. So it's very cheap. So then what would the next steps be? Is it solvency or would it be, would it be like, you know, following the story sure, to make sure sol- they could survive? Sure, solvency. I do have to say, though, if the Cheesecake Factory is going to be in bankruptcy, yeah, every a other lot of restaurants smoked. in America are going to be in bankruptcy. Yeah. Um, now, it is in malls, right? So that could people could be very negative on malls. That's a big issue. They do have expensive leases and stuff, and that's an issue. But they're, you know, they're running a way that they should be careful about those sorts of things. Um, the company could be sold at any time too, because you have, um, let's see, what what's the, uh, we can't check down here. I was gonna say that you have a founder like company where the age of the founder is, is pretty old. Yeah, he's old. Um, and the, the concept is sort of played out in the sense that I don't think they can really open more stores. So it's the kind of thing that in a different time, private equity will buy or Landry's will buy or something like that. Um, Growth has been very, very hard for this company. If you look at the 10-year revenue growth, you have like 4.5%. And the reason for that is once they open a cheesecake factory, it really doesn't grow revenue at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not that different from a bunch of I was going to say that's how that different from our, all restaurants are, right? Uh, a lot of them. Not the big chains. Okay. The big chains are different. Um, but for the ones that open up to immediate fanfare and stuff, and then our large format location, absolutely, yeah. But you can get higher revenue growth at the concepts that are still growing. Like Cheesecake Factory had very high revenue growth when it was a hot concept that was going in more and more locations. I just think they're already in those like A malls and everything already. Mm-hmm. So I don't think they can do that. So you're getting like inflation type levels of, of growth at your existing restaurants. Let's um, talk about a, another okay. company that undoubtedly is probably one of the most affected um, uh, restaurant slash bar slash yeah. arcades out there, mm-hmm. right? And that's Dave and & Buster's. And I mean, to your point earlier about being attached to malls, most Dave & Buster's, if not all, I, I think most are attached to malls. Um, things are usually in the same mall right next to each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one I'm thinking of, actually, and yeah, they're right with, next to each other. With an AMC or a Cinemark or something like yeah. that, that's, that's kind of the thing that all malls want. Before COVID, all malls wanted the tenants that were Cheesecake Factory, Dave and & Buster's, and a movie theater mm-hmm. right there. That's that's like what they needed. Yeah, so Dave & Buster's uh, got smoked during when everything was happening. Then they issued, lot, they issued equity. Yeah. But I think it's actually the market cap's right around the same because they've issued a ton of equity, right? Because this says it's a $423 million market cap, which I feel like maybe, I don't remember what it was, but I know at one point when it was like, what, $5? But then they issued a ton of stock. Let's see. Could look at a six month. Oh my gosh, yeah, the stock was at forty four and then when everything happened, yeah, the what was the low? Like four dollars and eighty seven cents. Yeah, because we did a podcast where we talked about leaps and things, and I was like, leaps could be interesting in something like Dave and Busters, or I don't think the Dave and Busters had leaps though. And remember we talked a little bit about like the volatility, and mm-hmm. I felt like the volatility 
people were complaining that you for options on Dave and Buster's and things you had to pay an incredible amount versus the stock price. But yeah. I was like, they're going to be so volatile that that's not the thing that's going to kill you. It, this company going under will kill you. But if it doesn't go under the volatility, it'll be so big that you're yeah. not paying that much versus volatility. Yeah, this company, in my opinion, is truly in a distressed situation, even if people don't like to acknowledge that it's going to be one of the most affected things because of the arcades and being clean and, and you know, proper protocol around that. I'm assuming these aren't even open yet again. Yeah. So um, you can check their website. They haven't been open for a while. I am signed up for their marketing stuff. So they would normally tell me those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Their restaurants are open. Mm -hmm. They're doing takeout. They were doing takeout like right away. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, they're Dallas headquarter company. Yeah. And uh, main event is Plano, I think, too. So one of their big competitors are both here. Um, How would you evaluate Dave and Buster's? So I have a slightly different opinion than some other pe people. We've talked about this before. I'm. I think there's much greater danger of things like Dave and Buster's and things that have bars and stuff of having huge problems for COVID for a very long time than people think. Uh, we'll see if that happens. It depends on which authorities will do things and stuff. But from what I've seen of the statistics on covid the thing that has really stood out to me from a business perspective is the risk that bars could be shut down in such a way that they will be out of business they could be shut down for so long in places that they will never recover and never reopen i don't know if local authorities will do that but i have no doubt that health officials that advise them and stuff will tell them this is what you need to do now the people who run the cities and the states and the federal government and stuff can make whatever decision they make that's not run by experts it's run by elected officials so they may decide not to do that but I think that that is the huge risk that you'll have. It, um, clubs, I just think that the spread of the disease is going to happen a lot through bars and clubs and things. Um, and so that's a problem that this company would face. Um, I, I would not invest in it until after there's been significant recapitalizations and stuff. I think it's a very interesting company, very interesting concept. I like the economics of it. I think there's tons of room for growth in it. Um, and so I think it can create a ton of value in the future. I mean, if you look, what was return on capital in the last few years, they had positive returns on capital for a few years there. I mean, uh, double digit for a few years there and that we won't get into it, but there's some cash flow economics to them and stuff that I think that significantly understates really their real returns on it. Um, their accounting returns are under what their real, um, cash flow type payback periods are and stuff. So I think there's great potential for that. And I think also their competitors will all be wiped out by this basically or whatever, you know? So, uh, but I think it's possible they'll have to be recapitalized a bunch of times or something. Yeah. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and I on the Focus Compounding Podcast. We are using QuickFS, and if you do want to sign up for that, uh, make sure you tell them in checkout that you came from Focus Compounding. Uh, we did go over this piece from our app. It's actually being developed in the iOS store or for the iOS store and Android. Uh, but right now, you could just go to focuscompounding.com slash app, and you'll get access to everything. As you can see, look at that. Yeah, look at that video. The, you'll get the daily write-up. Videos. Like, something like this one that I did on the uh, book yeah. that he wrote. Yeah. And then access to our total uh, backlog. So it's pretty cool. So I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us on the Focus Compounding Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode.